Welcome once again to the Ark and Anth podcast. It's your host, Dr. Michael Rivera here, and this is the podcast all about anthropology, the study of people, and archaeology, the study of the human past. Today, I have Robin Lacey on the show calling in from Canada. Robin, are you there? Yes. Hello. How are you today, Robin? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing pretty well also. I wish the weather was a bit better, but... You know, that's just how it is sometimes. It's raining here too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and where in Canada are you calling in from today? I'm in London, Ontario. Oh, cool. Is that easy to get to? Like if, if people want to visit Canada and visit London? Yeah, it's about two hours driving um, southwest of Toronto. So we're below the 49th parallel. Okay, interesting. Uh, and, you know, mainly where are you based and how's your like commute to work? Um, so lately I've been working for a CRM company that's based in London. Um, we do most of the projects locally. Mm-hmm. Um, so within like a two hours drive of London. So I just like go to the office every morning. Yeah. Um, I think there'll be some away projects next summer, but probably still a lot of like Southwestern Ontario is basically the, the major working area. That's really cool. Uh, and I imagine like the work is quite uh, varied, like week to week, month to month. Um, can you give like an idea of the, the variation of the things that might come uh, towards your, your CRM company? Yeah. So mostly what I've been working on uh, this fall, I just started with this company a couple months ago. Um, we've been doing stage four, which is like the, the final excavation for commercial archaeology, where you're actually opening up units and excavating out the entire site um, mm-hmm. to make sure it doesn't get damaged. Um, so we've been doing mostly indigenous sites. Um, and there's been some really interesting, uh, there's a lot of like tool making in this area. So we're finding quite a lot of points and scrapers. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had some interesting soil features, which is like the part that I think is really cool looking at the um, like refuse piles, using the stains to the soil and everything. Um, mm-hmm. But there are a lot of historic sites in this area too, which is like more my wheelhouse. Um, but I haven't yeah. worked on any yet uh, within the last couple months, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so like um, your particular role, are you kind of uh, just called upon uh, no matter what it is? Or is it like you don't know what you're going to find and, you know, you kind of just have to bounce around different skills and, you know, try try and like recover uh, objects and analyze objects, whatever is in the ground? Yeah. So for this job, I'm a field tech. So I'm, I'm just kind of starting out with them. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just like a, a wearing every hat kind of situation. Cool. Um, mostly excavation. Uh, the supervisors do most of the recording, but I have a lot of experience um, doing field recording of features and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's I've been like starting to teach people that haven't had that experience uh, for their archaeology careers so far, like yeah. how to do top down feature recording um, mm-hmm. and like, illustrations like that. So I think I'll be doing a bit more of that in the new year. Okay, interesting. Uh, how long does it take for, um, I, I suppose it depends on the project, but you know, roughly how long does one project take place? Um, yeah, it's definitely totally varied. I was on one that had been going on for months, um, a couple uh, hydro towers where they were excavating uh, 10 by 10 meter areas where new poles were going to be going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got on to the project like just at the end and we were doing like two poles, but there was like three or four sites, I think there. Yeah. Um, I, I think they just finished backfilling that, which I did not have to do. Happily. Right. Um, and then there was like another small project 
uh, about an hour away from London that I worked on that was just like in a front yard of a property that was being developed. Mm-hmm. And we were only there for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned earlier that like your your wheelhouse is kind of like looking at uh, historic Canada. And uh, I was wondering, you know, even, even historic Canada, there, there's so many little facets of like human life in the past mm-hmm. that people can be interested in. Um, as an archaeologist, what are you most uh, curious about? What kinds of questions are, do you like to ask? Yeah, so I did my math master's at Memorial University in Newfoundland um, in historic archaeology specifically, but I was looking mostly at uh, 17th century burial grounds. Mm -hmm. So what I'm like specifically interested in is, yeah, burial landscape organization and sort of like the history of burial practices within colonial settlements in North America. Mm -hmm. What drew you to this uh, particular time period and uh, specific topic? Um, So initially I started my archaeology career thinking I was going to do underwater archaeology. Cool. And then <laughs> I, I still think that would be really cool, but um, my ears don't equalize very well for diving, so it might not be the best option. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then I went to Calgary for my undergrad, and they have a really good Mesoamerican program in their department. So I was like, oh, I can do Mesoamerica. Mm-hmm. So I, was, I did a lot of studying of that. Um, and then I did a field school in Ireland and on the Isle of Man okay. uh, after the first year of my undergrad. And I was just like, I just wanted to go there and I thought it'd be really cool. But the first two weeks of the field school were surveying cemeteries in Ireland. Um, And basically like day two, I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I just like completely switched switched gears, sorry. And I've been uh, sort of down this cemetery laden path ever since. Interesting. Um, So I think like when it comes to like cemeteries or like, graveyards um there might be people there might be listeners who think that that is like a little bit morbid and um i was wondering like what what do you think about that like is it morbid um how do how do you think about you know working sort of like in death studies and in, in uh, working in graveyards and cemeteries mainly i've always been pretty comfortable uh being in like in cemeteries and around places like that mm-hmm. um I remember like my family going on holidays uh, and like we always went to historic sites, which is probably where I get a lot of this interest from. Um, But like in middle school in Alaska, going to cemeteries where like the victims of like a famous shootout in Skagway, Alaska were buried and we went to see like miners who had died on the Chilkoot Pass and stuff. So Mm -hmm. it's always like been there. Um, I think that of course people do think that uh, death studies and stuff like that is a little morbid, but what's semi become my catchphrase at this point is that it's not morbid to talk about death. It's like the only thing that happens to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has been a resurgence in the last like bunch of years with like the order of the good death and a lot more people becoming interested in like archaeology of death and burial spaces, mm-hmm. uh, which has been pretty big in Europe and stuff, but it's becoming more of a thing in North America as well. Um, just like being able to talk about that (laughs) and um yeah being able to like have conversations about it with your family and i found that like when you are the person who studies death and is comfortable talking about it you get a lot of people who are then suddenly asking you questions that like they might not have thought to ask Mm -hmm. or been comfortable to ask to someone earlier because like you're a person they can talk to that like knows a little bit more maybe Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I work. I uh, I mainly work like in uh, prehistory, like looking at skeletons. Um, mm-hmm. In the same way, like I'm kind of drawn to that. Um, you know, trying to understand the stories of people who cannot tell their own stories uh, anymore, basically. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, when it comes to more uh, like historic or, or modern day, like you know, walking through cemeteries, uh, the only context that I've ever done that is when uh, someone close has passed away, and. Mm-hmm. Like, I also find it really interesting, like emotionally, uh, of course, I'm going through it <laughs> when I um, a- am at a, at a service um, either or I'm, I'm going to visit a grave uh, either in Hong Kong, where I'm from, or mm-hmm. in uh, the UK, where I did like my last 10 years of, of studies and work. And, uh, but anthropologically, like if I remove the emotion from it and I'm just sort of looking at it anthropologically, I also find it really interesting how uh, different cultures or even different families within cultures have, have different or individuals within families have different ways of making sense of it. Um, and I think that's really uh, interesting, basically. Like, I always notice that whenever I am walking through a cemetery with, with people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this past summer, I had the interesting opportunity to work as a gravestone conservator at a cemetery in London. Um, and yeah, we got a lot of like, we were trying to do a lot of social media stuff because the cemetery does have um, like a historian who works there and does a lot of heritage stuff, which is really, really cool for an active cemetery. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we would get comments from people online, me and my colleague being like, why are those girls smiling in photos and stuff? And you could just tell that like some people had this idea that like the work we were doing should be a certain way or that like you're supposed to act a certain way in burial sites and really it's like mm-hmm. this place that is for everybody and you act in your own way there but like everyone interprets that space differently yeah uh, if we go back to like your your master's mm-hmm. when you were uh, studying the 17th century burial grounds did you go visit them in person uh, i visited some i did a survey of about 60 three sites, I believe. Okay. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't have time. Well, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did visit some. I visited a bunch of the ones that I surveyed in Newfoundland. Um, and then um, my partner is from New England. So we were down there a couple of times. So I got to see a couple of the sites um, in Connecticut uh, and Massachusetts as well. Okay. And there's definitely major differences in the yeah. areas. And if you're, if you're not going through uh, them in person, uh, how are you surveying them? Um, so I sort of did a combination of, with quotations, space archaeology, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> using like satellite images and Google Earth. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Com- like combined that on one screen with historic maps and records, basically. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those settlements from the 17th century, we don't have accurate maps showing where they like originally laid the towns out. Um, mm-hmm. But that's sort of like what I was trying to figure out was where the burial spaces were within that original layout of the settlement. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of like, oh, I found a map from like 1750 and this record from 16 whatever and mm-hmm. sort of like figure out where they were mm-hmm. um, and then transposing that onto Google Earth to find out where it was in the current settlement so I could actually like mm-hmm. have dots on a map and know where I was spatially. <laughs> right. Because I, I imagine like the challenge is that like, I don't know, with like just geology changing or like urban requirements, mm-hmm. like some sometimes things shift around. Absolutely. And like people 
have different priorities for what they want to even put on a map. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. my, my favorite map is a copy of one from the Boston Book of Possessions from 1645. Um, and there's some dispute over whether it's like a perfect copy or not, of course, but I haven't been able to find the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, the copy is from the 1800s, but like it's supposed to be a replica, so hoping it's okay. But the Boston was Puritan, very Puritan in the 17th century. Um, and they didn't really use their burial spaces as a religious space. It was supposed to just be like the common ground, cattle were grazing there, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so this map has it with a dotted line around the first burial ground in Boston, but it's not labeled. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of there, which is really interesting because maps 200 years later, like very clearly write that like, this is a burial ground. It's called mm-hmm. this, it, all the information. But if you go back 200 years, they were just like, here's a field. It's got some <laughs> graves or whatever. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I've always been fascinated by this, uh, like using of, you know, Google Maps or like similar satellite images for archaeology or, you know, other kinds of like surveying. And, um, and no one on the show has uh, talked about it yet. Is that easy to do? Like, what are the challenges? Uh, but also what are like some of the advantages of, of using techniques like that? Um, I think... The biggest advantage is that you don't have to get a bunch of money to actually go mm-hmm. see the sites in person, especially if what you're basically looking at is a top-down view. Like you just want to know where it is, sort of yeah. the dimensions and stuff. You can do all of that, especially with Google Earth Pro, which is free, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Um, you can sort of like measure out polygons and get an idea of the size of these spaces. Um, but you can also sort of turn on a topographic view because they are scanning the ground with the satellites. You can get it's not perfect. It's not LIDAR. Um, but you can get a rough idea of sort of the, the shape of the ground there, the topography. Mm-hmm. And you can like, it's cool. Mm-hmm. You can kind of walk around on the ground too with the arrow keys. It's like a little weird video yeah. game. Um, but that was important for my research as well because I was interested in knowing if the burials were on slopes or not because a lot of the time they'd pick this place that wasn't ideal for building or for farming and that's where they would put the graves Mm -hmm. so i wanted to know if that was like a majority happening Mm -hmm. um yeah so like being able to turn on this topographic view and i've had some comments from reviewers being like that's not accurate and it's not a hundred percent (laughs) accurate but like it's as good as you can get without raising thousands of dollars and going to check them all in person yeah and you were looking at over like 60 of uh, 60 sites as well Exactly. So like when you're, when you're looking at the maps or maybe even going to them in person sometimes, um, I'm wondering like, what are you making observations of and um, maybe trying to like quantify or try to like suss out so that you can uh, find some answers to interesting questions? Yeah. So for my master's research, what I was looking for was sort of the original layout. And I had like a list of variables I was looking at for like the settlement and how they were placing the burial space. Mm -hmm. Like, was it sort of Mm -hmm. central to the community or was it kind of an outlying space? Um, If the community was fortified with like walls or protective um, blockhouses around it, which a lot of these early communities were, um, did they put their burial space within their walls or outside of them? Um, I wanted to know if they were on slopes, stuff like that. And what I was doing with that data was collecting it into like into um, SPSS, the statistical program, mm-hmm. and running frequency models to see like what percentage were on a hill versus on a flat area. 
and like interior versus exterior fortifications. Um, and then that data sort of allows us to see what the majority of settlements within like a certain group, like I was just looking at British settlements from the early sort of the mid 17th century. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. looking at like what the majority of them were doing. And then you can break it down by like regions like Massachusetts Bay was much different than Virginia. Um, and that information then informed an excavation I was running in Newfoundland to look for 17th century burials at the fourth oldest British settlement in North America, which is Fair Island. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you also mentioned that like after that, you also had worked for some time um, mm-hmm. in, in conservation as well, like conservation cemeteries. And I was wondering like, uh, what would be some things about like uh, gravestone arrangements, like spatially or even like the, the design of like the tombs? Like mm-hmm. what are things that maybe people who don't work in, in this line of work would know? Okay. Um, yeah. 17th century gravestones, we don't have a ton of them from like the early colonial period, unfortunately, whether mm-hmm. that be because they were making them out of wood, which is very likely. Um or because they didn't have like stone carvers set up. Um, the oldest known gravestone from the British in North America uh, is the, there's a large ledger stone, which is like a large flat stone that lays on the ground from Jamestown um, mm. that they believe is, it's made of an imported, uh, I want to say limestone, that could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um but it had like a brass on it that depicted the figure. So it was probably made overseas and then shipped to Jamestown. Um, Mm. From Fairland, Newfoundland, we have fragments of two gravestones that um, a project I was working on while I was there was doing um, XRF. So looking at the uh, chemical makeup of the stone to show that the stones that these gravestones were made from were collected from a local source. So those are probably the oldest gravestones that were carved in North America that we know of. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would have just been sort of like, sort of what you think of if you're thinking of a gravestone, like the spooky Halloween, like the shape. <laughs> right. Um, and they would have just been long tablets that would, you dig a hole and you stick it in the ground and the bottom like foot or so doesn't have any inscriptions on it because then you can like pack it in and that's how it stands up. Yeah. Um, whereas today it's more common to have sort of like a large granite uh, limestone or cement sort of like a base um, mm-hmm. and then the stone is sitting on top of it and that's like more what you see today um, mm-hmm. those are uh, this is a good tidbit um, mm-hmm. <laughs> those styles of gravestones granite is incredibly strong it doesn't weather very easily it doesn't grow um, lichens very easily so it's really durable material to make a gravestone out of but mm-hmm. this style where it's just like this block of granite on top of a base mm-hmm they are usually attached by a sealant and those sealants do not stay for more than like 10 to 15 years. So if you're in a cemetery with that style of gravestone, don't lean on them because they will fall over. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very easy to push them over. It's a huge problem. Oh no, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, in, in Hong Kong, um, on the, in the cemetery, the cemeteries are mostly like uh, Catholic ones because uh, mm-hmm. there were many missionary um, like, yeah, there, there, there are many missions that came to Hong Kong <laughs> and uh, a lot of people uh, have Catholic ones. And those are the ones that I'm most familiar with because my family are mostly Catholic. Mm-hmm. And um, Catholic Chinese cemeteries, they basically like have 
the cemetery like usually like on a hill of some sort and so you just have like rows and rows and rows of uh, either like tombstones or you have um uh you know uh, smaller like slots for uh cremated remains like mm-hmm. in a, inside a little compartment and uh i i was wondering like in hong kong some, sometimes it, you know the the better spots i guess like where um we have wild, we have uh, wild monkeys that run around in hong kong the ones awesome. that don't, yeah it, it is quite strange to see them like you know stealing flowers and like the, the you know things that we've dedicated to the dead um, mm-hmm. but for the for the gravestone spots that are far away from where the monkeys live or for like spots that are higher up or for spots that are like bigger, like spaces that are bigger, um, those tend to be for like richer, wealthier families. And I was wondering, like, does that sort of thing happen uh, also, like in in the context that you're most familiar with? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Maybe not with the monkeys. Um, <laughs> no, not the monkeys. <laughs> unfortunately, that'd be cool. <laughs> um, yeah. So where I was working this summer at Woodland Cemetery, there's some plots that are sort of closer to the entrance that are quite large and you see people with like incredibly large monuments there um and some of those people were buying several plots just for their whole family um but then when you get farther away from the entrance and closer to the road um Mm -hmm. where there's like a fence and a road and it's a little bit louder and like i wouldn't want to be buried there um definitely like the size of the monuments decreases and i think they have a standard width but you don't see people buying like war plots to put a huge monument across all of them kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think there's mm-hmm. definitely like a disparity between setups in the cemeteries like that. Mm-hmm. And so how many active projects do you have going on at the moment? <laughs> um, too many. <laughs> um, so I'm currently just like independent research person right now, um, working in CRM and doing research on the side, but I'm sort of working on a couple like ongoing topics at the moment. Um, as well as I just applied to do a PhD. So fingers crossed on that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my two like main streams right now are looking at apotropaic marks, which are like protective symbols, um, which is like folk, folk magic basically um, hmm. in mortuary contexts. So like being put on gravestones um, and in churches and stuff. What, what do those look like? They often get described as like a rosette the most common one is called the hex foil or hexa foil mm-hmm. um and it's like a six-pointed flower or like star shape um it's it's basically drawn with like you could draw it with any kind of compass like thing um yeah so it'd be like you draw a circle and then like these arches sort of make the six-pointed symbol um and it's incredibly old they've found examples of it on like i think a second century BCE. Uh, Jewish ossuary boxes, but then the writings on those say that they think that the Jewish people at that point had taken the symbol from like pre-Roman pagan religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like this incredibly old symbol that was probably brought into the UK. We see it on like Roman stuff in Rome, and then we also see it on Romano-British gravestones. Um, so it sort of like worked its way into like the um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like superstition practices of like pre-Reformation Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
like after the Reformation, people, they didn't like the folk magic thing happening. So they sort of dissuaded it. You used to see it in churches and then you see it in the home because people were still using it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it sort of fell out of use in the UK. But at the same time, this was the 17th century now. So it was being, it got brought over to North America and kind of fossilized as a protective symbol. And you can find it in a lot of colonial period buildings. Yeah. Um, in New England, um, but also on a lot of gravestones. So we believe that it was being used as like protection, potentially for like the soul of the dead or for the individuals who were visiting mm-hmm. them. Really interesting. Like, and yeah, sounds like fruitful ground to the research. It's really cool. It's just like because folk magic, people don't write anything down about it. Right. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's a lot of like staring at the thing on the gravestone. Why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, and uh, I was wondering like, what was you know what what do you think is the most like uh, challenging part about the job that you do? Um, I mean, currently because I am doing several actual like paying jobs while being like an early career researcher for my own like interest on the side. It's probably just like trying to do all those things, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to like actually like work in my research topics and like I have a research blog, so trying to like occasionally actually write something for it. Um, and I'm working on a manuscript that's based off of my master's research right now, which is in like the editing phase for my publisher. Um, mm-hmm. So like trying to finish edits and do writing and work full time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. But now we're like sort of like end of December, like beginning of January time now. What are you excited about in terms of like work for 2020? Um, I'm excited to actually get to work full time. Uh, in the field next summer or spring summer because this year was like I had like four different jobs this year um so it'll be nice to like have a little bit more stability as stable as CRM archaeology can be um Mm -hmm. and hopefully like find a better balance for doing my own writing on the side kind of thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh and hopefully hear back something about my PhD application (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, when you're working like cultural resources management, is it, what's the ideal situation like uh, that people are striving for? Is it, is it possible to have something like uh, permanent or sort of settled? Um, my first CRM job out of my undergrad was a permanent position, which is very unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working in BC for a very small company uh, in the Kootenai region, which is sort of like the southeast corner of the province. Um and there was like eight of us and they hired just like four new people, four mm-hmm. new people. Um, and we were like the field techs, but during the winter, we also wrote up reports from the field season. Um, but like, that's very rare. And most companies you do field work until it's too cold. Mm-hmm. Out, like it is right now, mm-hmm. it's snowing now. Um, <laughs> and then you like find a winter job or you go on EI or um, do something else for the winter for a couple months and like everyone's just kind of stagnating mm-hmm. waiting for the ground to thaw again basically <laughs> yeah so hopefully I can get some more writing done over the winter but it's currently like the edge of the field season so like some people have been out I haven't done any field work for like a week <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and so like uh, I guess it's sort of just very uh, constant right and you know, the work like continues. And when, when you have uh, kind of reaching the end of a, of one project, uh, a new one pops up. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, my company has like three or four field teams, like enough people to do three or four projects at once. Um, and it looks like we're going to be really busy next summer. So it's probably going to be like entire weeks of like 10 hour days and then the weekend. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, during the field season, it's like nonstop. 
and then it suddenly just like peters out and you have nothing. <laughs> You're like, oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering, uh, although like these are the areas that you concentrate on, um, is it like an exciting time in CRM in general? Like what are others working yeah, on? Everyone's is- like got their own research that they did their degrees in and often that doesn't overlap at all with what we're doing mm-hmm. um, commercially. The commercial archaeology market is mostly driven by the developer, um, which is great because there's a lot of development going on. Mm-hmm. They are like really good because they do require archaeologists to come in. It's good that we like by law have to be there to get the archaeology right. out of the way. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of like, I know some people did their projects on sites that the, um, like in this region that the company has worked on. So there's some overlap there. And then there's people that like did burial archaeology in Italy. And that's nothing like mm-hmm. what we're doing now. But obviously, a lot of the skills are transferable, mm-hmm. luckily. And, uh, you know, particularly like at, at this time, like if you don't mind me asking, like what, what do you think about mm-hmm. uh, as an archaeologist and from your, your standpoint, how, how do you feel about the fact that um, there, there will be like First Nations lands that get affected by this? Of course, the, the companies that do development um, in Ontario have a lot of, um, they have to do a lot of consultations with Indigenous uh, groups in the area. And when we do field work, that is involving an indigenous site, we have monitors um, from those nations with us um, Mm -hmm. sort of to follow the work that's being done and make sure that like everything that we're doing is respectful uh, to their culture and to how they would like their artifacts treated, Mm -hmm. which is really good Um, for the region that I've like lived and worked in in British Columbia is like in the middle of all of the pipeline things. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pipeline stuff going on in BC that's, a lot more heated than it has been in okay. Ontario. Mm-hmm. It's really good that because of the like cultural heritage laws that we have in place, at least um, archaeology has to be done, um, and they can't just like developments can't just bulldoze mm-hmm. at least legally uh, through heritage sites. Um, so there is some like the recording is there. I know that you do a lot of outreach as well because you do um, you know you, you're very active on social media and you. Uh, have a research blog as well and, you know, do public archaeology from time to time. And I was wondering, uh, mm-hmm. are, are members of the public uh, also interested in like, uh, you know, this question of like how archaeology uh, plays a role in like, you know, modern day politics or like, you know, issues that are going on at the moment? Do they ask questions about that kind of thing? Um, I think I think they are. I know a lot of friends on Twitter um, have a lot more discussions about like the political side of stuff. Um, most mm-hmm. of the questions I get are from people through my blog uh, asking like specific questions about burial grounds, um, whether it be like the conservation of the sites or the gravestones or um, uh, looking for like relatives that might be buried there. Um, so mm-hmm. like where I can, I try and direct them to the right resources um, or for conservation stuff. Um, have the discussions because like my, my main thing for public archaeology of cemeteries is that I want like volunteer groups um, and people who are like mm-hmm. helping out uh, historic sites because a lot of these historic sites are run by volunteers um, that might not have the like academic background in the conservation but they're the ones on the ground doing it um, mm-hmm. so I want to like be available <laughs> to make sure people have access at, at least as much as I can to like modern conservation practices because unfortunately Mm -hmm. you see a lot of outdated ones 
um, being used in cemeteries, which are like irreversible and very damaging to mm-hmm. gravestones. So like, yeah. I feel like we're all like everyone who does public archaeology is just like doing what they can to make sure that their bit of knowledge is accessible to people who might want to like be able mm-hmm. to benefit from it in some way. I mean, if they're, lo- if they're like volunteers who are local, um, you know, it is their uh, community that you are trying to mm-hmm. sort of preserve and um, respect and, you know, derive, derive knowledge about. Uh, and so it's kind of like, you know, making sure that they're, they're on the same page as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, like working with the cemeteries in London, uh, one was uh, Brick Street Cemetery, which is the oldest settler cemetery uh, in this area. It was probably like 18, like 16 to 20, uh, which is really early for here. Um, and it's been run by a volunteer group for the last several decades. Um, so what I was doing with them was um, sort of gathering the data that they had been collecting, but not like correlating <laughs> together. Um, for the last like long time um, mm-hmm. and sort of pulling that all together into one document that, that they can refer to more easily um, when they're like moving forward doing research. Um, and then also like I've been me and my colleague from uh, Woodland Cemetery are giving a talk to the Genealogical Society of Ontario uh, in the new year about gravestone conservation mm-hmm. because like it is an issue with people being like, oh, I'll just, I'll put that stone back together with cement or something. Right. And like, Please don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like, there's so much online that um, says that that's fine. Or like, this is how you do a gravestone rubbing. And you're like, no, don't. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you can paint on the thing. And we're just like, stop in the background. <laughs> um, yeah. So like trying to, trying to make that something that people have a, have a resource that's like a professional being like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> do this other thing. It's a little bit better and like won't be as complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to like uh, preserving burial grounds, does it require lots of resources and like uh, is, is, some, is money a, pr- a problem at the moment? So I haven't come across a CRM company that actually does gravestone conservation itself. Um, yeah, they mostly deal with like the subsurface. Um, gravestones will be involved if there's like the, like a burial ground is being moved mm-hmm. um there are, is at least one company memorial restoration that does specifically cemetery conservation and they're very good um in ontario but yeah usually it's just like private groups that are like volunteering in the sites and they're all um responsible for the conservation of them on their own okay yeah mm-hmm and uh, what made this sort of, uh, what made archaeology overall like an attractive subject for you to pursue in the very beginning? Um, I'm not entirely sure when I decided I wanted to go into archaeology, but I remember my friend and I in like grade one um, saying we were both going to become archaeologists and apparently I never changed my mind. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my family always like went to museums and heritage sites, so I I suspect like early on, I was like, history is awesome. <laughs> I mean, I used to say like, uh, I used to think it was only Bones and then uh, like the TV show Bones. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but then for, for some reason, like in, in talking to so many guests now, uh, it, it has since come out that like, you know, even things like The Mummy, uh, Ice Age, um, you know, uh, Jurassic Park even, like it, it just has, you know, kept this interest in the past, like overall, mm-hmm. that, that is what it has done to me. And it isn't just Bones because Bones is the most uh, obvious one for, for what I do. But um, 
yeah, there, there's like a lot of like pop culture that kind of like references the past and like, you know, made it really cool to me to do this for a job because like, it's kind of like you're a detective and you're, you're going back in time to this inaccessible, to inaccessible information, it seems, but, but you have the skills to like get all that knowledge out. Oh yeah. It's awesome. There was a museum I was working at in high school and the education coordinator said that a kid in an educational program she was running said that uh, everything that we did was a history mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's my favorite go-to phrase now. <laughs> history mystery. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, that sounds like a great like hashtag for the episode, to be honest. <laughs> That would be good. I'm surprised I haven't used that before. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have somewhere online that people can find you if they want to ask you any questions about the work that you do? Absolutely. I am on Twitter at Robin, R-O-B-Y-N, little dash, not the underscore, L-A. Okay. Um, and I also have a research blog, which is called spadeandthegrave.com. Cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, what do you mainly blog about on there? Um, it's mostly like an archaeology of death and burial blogs. So I'm mostly talking about like cemeteries I visit, death and burial, like tourism. Um, A recent post I did, I was in Scotland recently. um, And one of the other things I really like are uh, watchtowers Mm -hmm. for uh, body snatching and dead houses to store bodies in uh, during the winter or to keep them safe from body snatchers. And we saw a couple of them there. So it's basically like a blog post of me yelling about it. (laughs) You're going to have to explain this a little bit more. (laughs) Oh, okay. okay. (laughs) Uh, What now? (laughs) Okay. Um, so there are these structures called dead houses or mort houses or like um, receiving tombs okay. that in, in North America were primarily used to store bodies during the winter when it was too cold to dig graves. Okay. Um, they're still used, actually. There's some in use in Newfoundland. There's some in use in Ontario that I know about. Um, there's a lot of them in Massachusetts. I don't think those ones are being used anymore. Um, but they're like a, they were at one point a really common structure. But in the UK, especially around Edinburgh, um, with like the Burke and Hare body snatching, mm-hmm. um, these structures were safes basically where you would put the corpse um, until it had decomposed to a point that it would no longer be useful to the anatomy professors. Yeah, and then you'd bury it. But for people that couldn't afford to be in these mort safes or uh, dead houses, or if they were full, they would have to be buried. But um, one of the things people would do would like hold vigils for weeks over their family's graves until like to keep them safe until they had decomposed. Um, But that's obviously like kind of difficult for people to do. So uh, cemeteries started building these watchtowers and they'd hire guards to live in them like 24 seven to guard the dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of these structures, they're, they're huge. They're like several stories tall and they're still there. So getting to see a couple in Edinburgh. I have a picture of me like hugging the side of one. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're awesome. Amazing. Yeah. So is there anything that you feel that we haven't covered already that you wanted to say or share with the listeners about the work that you do? Do you have any closing messages? I'll probably just repeat what I said at the beginning, which is that it's not morbid to talk about death. And it's a topic that we should all be more open to exploring a little bit and like actually considering knowing what mm-hmm. you want. Mm-hmm for the future, what, like discussing with your family, um, what their end of life plans are. Um, and that like, it does tie into doing archeology span of death because like we're a little bit more comfortable. So if you have questions about historic burial practices or 
modern burial practices. It does all tie together. Um, and yeah, I'm cool. <laughs> got any questions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm available. Amazing. Um, so let me see. And, and do you, what, what, what hashtag should we use? Should we just use history mystery? I think so. Cause that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> It's a pretty good one. Um, it's a good one. Yeah. So listeners, if you want to uh, check out more about uh, Robin's work, I would definitely include a bunch of links on arcanath.com underneath her episode. You can let us know that you've listened to the episode on social media. The podcast itself is on Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pod. Thank you to the patrons who keep the show going. If you also want to become a patron and support the show, you can find out the benefits of doing so at patreon.com slash Pod. New episodes will come out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Arcananth.com. Robin, thank you so much for being today's expert. Thank you for having me. Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye.